Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast. Today, my guest is Amanda Katarzy Hanks. And I do have to say that before I begin, I'm going to put out a pretty strong trigger warning because we do go over the topics of sex trafficking and suicidal ideation, and this can be a pretty intense episode. So please take care of yourself. Amanda was raised in an Italian family that came from a circus family, and when they moved to America, her family was looking for something better for her, and they ended up joining a cult, which is actually alive and active today. In that cult, the women are homeschooled. They're very isolated. The women's role is basically to have babies, to serve their men, to cook, to clean, to have sex with them. And by the age of 13, they're already starting to match those girls with men two to three times their age. Amanda was able to leave the situation in her early 20s, and she went across country, and she became an MMA fighter. And through time and manipulation and gaslighting, her trainer slowly started to work with her, and she found herself being sexed and labor trafficked. This is a horrendous story, but it is a story of inspiration and the human spirit and how absolutely powerful the human spirit can be. Amanda went through therapy, leaned on her support systems, dove deep into her trauma and her darkness, and was able to come out of this situation, and she is an absolute powerhouse that has healed herself. Today, Amanda is the director of two companies. She is an executive. She is a leader. She is an absolute powerhouse. And this is her story of her path and her healing. And so I hope you will find this story very inspirational. She is absolutely an impressive human being. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast, a place to explore possibility through mindfulness, movement, and self-discovery. Our intention is to deliver insight and inspiration while fostering conversations that are genuine, unfiltered, and deeply human. We hope you will enjoy today's episode. Hi, Amanda. Good morning. How are you today? Fantastic. How are you? I'm so good. And I'm so grateful to have you today on the Connected Community Podcast. I think we are going to dive into some really intense stuff today. And and I'm um, really feeling blessed to have this conversation with you. Yeah, me as well. Thank you so much for having me on and let me share with your listeners. Yes. So I was I was saying it, I don't even know where to start because your story is so big. And I've had a lot of big stories on here, but yours is really, really big. And I think yours is a story of the resilience of the human spirit and how to overcome obstacles because you came, you overcame obstacles that were insurmountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would love for you to share like from the beginning, I know that you were raised in a cult and that's kind of where your story begins. Yep. Um, and so let's just go there and see where, where our story takes us today. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you said it, I was raised in a cult. Um, and I would like to say that my parents are incredible human beings. They, uh, they, it's not like they, or malicious people or bad people. I think we all know that from enough documentaries that we've watched when people get into cults. It's a very well-meaning situation. So they're incredible human beings. But um, when they met, they met in the circus. And we come from an Italian circus family, the Ringling Brothers Circus. It's how my family got to America from Italy. 
and they fell in love instantly. Um, and they wanted a completely different lifestyle than either of them had. They wanted something different than what the circus offered, something different than this gypsy kind of sex and rock and roll kind of situation. So they found God, became Christians, and there was an organization offering homeschool curriculum. And back in the day when I was being in school of age to be in school, <laughs> uh, homeschool was not popular. It was mm-hmm. not the cool thing to do. There are very little resources. So the fact that this quote unquote Christian organization had homeschool material and was offering them a curriculum, it was felt like a godsend for them. So they were mm-hmm. all in, they dived headfirst into it. And the call it's called ATI Advanced Training Institute or IBLP Institute of Basic Life Principles. So uh, it's still operating today. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's actually a Netflix documentary on a family that was heavily involved with who I knew, mm-hmm. um, the Duggars, and it's called uh, Shiny Happy People. But mm-hmm. uh, it's a I actually very... watched that before oh, we yeah? chatted. Yes, and it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it is crazy. And they did a great job of really, um, you know, skimming the surface of it. But I think what they missed is the, the deep-seated ideological philosophy that they taught was so limiting. And so I grew up basically believing that I was born to be a baby maker. Um, School was not a big deal for me. They weren't really intentional about teaching women uh, anything important outside of homemaking. Like you only needed to learn numbers to cook and follow recipes and to sew. And it was a very weird mindset to grow up with. Um, and it was it was a simple lifestyle to grow up with, but unfortunately, it turned me into a very submissive woman that could not even ever begin to question a man or to have my own voice or personality. So it, it ultimately set me up for failure later on in life um, and how I was sex trafficked and labor trafficked. So how did your mom... Help me wrap my head around this because your parents were very open-minded, obviously coming from a circus, which is a story in itself. Um, How did they find this organization and how did your mom kind of fall into this trap of mindset? She was young, you know, she, she, it was her first time being married. It was her first time being, being a mom. And so I think she was scared. I think she came from a broken home. Um, Her mother kind of left her to her own devices starting at 16. So she didn't know how to parent. She didn't know how to build a quote unquote godly family. And here was something giving her a step by step, you know, process. So I think Mm -hmm. she was, when you act in fear over something you love, you create dysfunction because love and fear are opposites. And Mm -hmm. that's, basically what happens. And I feel like a lot of parents fall into that trap to where they're afraid of repeating or their their parents' mistakes, or they're afraid of whatever's going on in the world. And then that's when that control and that toxicity creeps in because nothing good comes from fear. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it wasn't necessarily, you know, she was being wildly deceived. I think she saw a very straightforward, easy route to take and raise a godly family. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think she understood how detrimental those teachings were and how 
because she had a different life experience, right? So she had a monitor and a compass that was able to be like, okay, well, that's not, we're not going all in on that. Or that idea Mm -hmm. is a little bit too much. So she knew better. But I don't think she took into account that we didn't. Mm -hmm. What was the fear behind, like, if if your mom didn't follow this path, what was the fear in that cult that would happen? Oh, it was just um, demonic possession. You'd be cast out of the church. Um, Dishonor, shame, guilt, hell. Mm -hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like very extremes. I remember, um, I do you remember back in like the 90s where kids would like shank, they would pull down the saggy pants and make people trip? I don't yes. know if that was a thing. Um, that was a thing. And I remember I shanked my cousin, I think it's called pants or something. I pants my cousin because he was sagging and I kind of like wanted to teach him a lesson because that was quote unquote wrong. Um, I don't know why I had that in my head, but my mom and dad thought that that was sexual behavior. And so I remember Mm. them pulling out all the scriptures of prostitutes and whores and making me read them and be like, this is the stuff you were doing and comparing me to those women and be like, you cannot be like that woman. Look how evil she is. Like, don't Mm -hmm. do something like that again. And it was the farthest thing from my mind was sexual advances towards my cousin but um that's kind of like what that fear mentality bred and mm-hmm. the kind of reactions they would have and the kind of consequences so it was a very extreme conservative world view of if you engage in this behavior you're the war from babylon uh and you're here to destroy all the christian godly men trying to live a christian godly lifestyle mm-hmm Basically, wow. all of men's actions, all of men's sinful actions were the woman's fault and responsibility to maintain and protect and guard their hearts. So it was a lot to carry. It all fell on the on the women. Mm-hmm. So the men didn't have any responsibility in that arena? Not really, because if your husband was cheating on you, then you weren't fulfilling your sexual duties as a wife. If you know, somebody raped you, then you definitely caused them to sin and caused them to stumble, whether it was by wearing too much eyeliner or your skirt was too tight or short, or there was wow. something on, you couldn't wear anything on your shirt because it was an eye trap. Um, so it was our responsibility to help maintain their sexual desires. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. I mean, and, and so when... That's just like one of the philosophies, mm-hmm. right? That was integrated. So you can understand how that would escalate into really negative situations. Mm-hmm. And by the time you're 13, that's when they start matching you for marriage. Is that right? Yeah, you did. You did uh, pay attention to the documentary. <laughs> yeah, I got a, I got a ruby necklace. Um, a little ruby pendant necklace because uh, Proverbs 31, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. And that's kind of like when they consider you an adult and so you start kind you start being matched with an adult male uh, to court and your father is the one that chooses that situation. 
Um, and you're trying to marry for status, you're trying to marry for money, you're trying to marry for rank. And the responsibilities upon those boys was very heavy as far as how successful they need to be at that point. Um, most of them needed to be working towards a house or have a house. And we didn't believe in debt. So no credit cards, no nothing, just cash. And so they would be slaving away at a pretty young age in order to make sure that they could Mm -hmm. provide for this wife that would be ready for them at 13. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. And these men were two to three times your age. Typically. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you think about what is required to have a house and pay for it in cash, they're going to have to have been working for a minute and a half. So yeah, mm-hmm. they were, they were older than me, substantially and older than me. What do you remember about that process growing up? I was not a good match for anyone. <laughs> I remember there'd be these trial, trial runs almost to where I'd be sent to a house where there's either one or multiple potential matches. And I would be cooking and cleaning for a week or taking care of their siblings because nobody would move out of their house until they're married, like boys or girls. And Mm -hmm. so I would be doing all this stuff and like basically slaving away, but I was a sassy Italian girl. So um, people tell me my face shows everything. I wear a million expressions. I have very expressive features and hands and whatnot. So to be like, you're going to scrub this floor and then cook dinner and then take care of this. And I was like, no. So my countenance was not bright is what they would Mm -hmm. say. Yeah. And how did your family respond to that? They, they thought I was demon possessed. Uh, The majority of my toddler situation and baby because I would cry quite a bit um so they thought I was demon possessed and then um as I got older I was just a rebellious I had a rebellious spirit and Mm -hmm. I was you know obnoxious and I was loud and I was um all the negative connotations or words you could use to describe someone who's assertive who's independent who's got entrepreneur blood in their veins uh Mm -hmm. I just did not do well in that environment at all. (laughs) And then you became an MMA fighter. So what age did that kind of come into your life? Yeah. So then I moved to California and I kind of broke away uh, from the family, which is the worst place I could have gone in their eyes. What uh, age, what age was that? About 21. Okay. I I moved there to go to a private school and uh, I started training when I was about 22, 23, and um, met my boxing coach. And I was actually really good at MMA. I was knocking people out left and right, winning a bunch of fights, (laughs) all that rage built up inside Uh me. (laughs) And then that's when I met my trafficker. So he was my boxing coach, and he managed all my fights. And um, we began a romantic relationship. And yeah, things went way south. <laughs> so you were 21. How old was he? He was in his 40s, I believe. So you can see those tendencies, right? Mm-hmm. Of older men, um, very dominant, very controlling, telling me exactly what to do. It was all those things that I'd been groomed to seek out and to submit to. So mm-hmm. it was a perfect storm. And he was doing that to other women at the same time? Yeah, I I didn't realize it because I was very naive. 
but I knew he had two exes and he had children by them. And, um, one of them was, was cool with me and they're around all the time. I'm like, why do you have your exes around you all the time? And then the other one did not like me. Like she threatened to kill me multiple times. She tried to kill me multiple times. She was crazy. And I'm having, I'm like, holy cow, this woman is just a psycho. And he would tell me, oh, she's just crazy. Like just ignore her. Don't believe anything she says. This poor woman, you know, she's just being abused and used by him. And I had, I had no idea. I was none the wiser. You know, she's like, he's, he's with me. He's not with you. He's cheating on you. He's cheating on me. And I'm like, you're just crazy. Like, I'm not going to believe anything you say. So he had us all. He played us all. Yeah. So he was grooming you at that time. And was he sex trafficking these other women? I believe so. I, I've stayed very far away from them. So Mm -hmm. potentially I, there's a lot I don't remember, but um, mm-hmm. I remember what happened to me, but I wasn't mm-hmm. really sure what was going on with them. I would assume so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how did that happen? How did you fall into that? Um, I imagine coming from the background that you came from, it was this slow story of manipulation and, and trusting somebody. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're kind of in over your head and you don't know how you got there. Yeah, it, it started off very slow and very incremental. Um, like we'd be at a party and he'd be like, Oh, that other guy thinks you're hot and that turns me on and I was like just kind of planting these ideas and I was like, That's weird and he's like, Oh, it'd be really hot if you like give him a blue job and but you're going home with me, like that's hot and I'm like, No, that's not Um <laughs> and so he'd be constantly like pushing me on other guys and I'm like, Why is he doing this? Like I'm with you, like what are you doing? And then um one night, uh, he basically arranged for me to be raped for him to get paid for it. And that's when things started going really downhill because he like blamed me, but it's okay because he forgives me and he still thinks I'm amazing. And, um, mm, you know, totally gaslighting you. Yeah, just kept doing that cycle over and over again. If you can imagine the confusion, the emotional trauma, the, the mental trauma of those situations happening over and over and over again, and then being praised for it, being forgiven for it, being quote unquote rewarded for these bad things happening to me, and then him keep pushing that agenda, it just breaks you down. It just breaks down any sort of red flags, any sort of moral compass, any sort of intuition. It's just completely obliterated in that process. I mean, it sounds super confusing. Mm-hmm. Absolute wow. chaos and constant conflict inside, just constant conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> How long did that happen? That went on for about eight months. And at the same time, he's labor trafficking me. So he's setting up fights for me and he's managing me. And uh, I didn't see any of that money. I won all those fights. I was fighting for money. I was fighting for, you know, a couple of different trophies and titles and whatnot, but uh, I never got paid for that. He, he was manage all of that for me. So by technicality, labor trafficked as well. So mm-hmm. I'm getting concussions every weekend. I'm exhausted and then potentially raped on top of it every single weekend, if not more consistently. Um, 
So I was pretty How did you up. get through that? How did you, did you disassociate? Oh yeah. I became the queen of disassociation. So that's now one of the biggest things I'm working through is re-engaging with emotions I do want to feel and re-engaging even with emotions I don't want to feel and processing through them and understanding how to handle them. And, you know, if somebody's mad at me, that does not mean that they're going to beat the living daylights out of me and I need to go on the defensive and have some crazy reaction. It just means, oh, they're upset. That's Mm -hmm. okay. They're allowed to be upset, you know? And so you just kind of talk yourself through it now. But yeah, hardcore disassociation, lots of rage, lots and lots of rage built up. Um, But disassociation became my most powerful survival tactic Mm -hmm. in in that stage. It almost seems like the MMA piece was an avenue to get that rage out. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I would destroy people. when I didn't even necessarily have to, I was not a good person. It turned me into somebody that I did not want to become. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not proud of that, but um, definitely channeled that <laughs> into my fights, which yeah. is why I was so successful as a fighter. It's coping. It's hardcore coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So that's going on for eight months. How did you get out of something like that? Um, well, Uh, I was sent to go see a client and I didn't want to engage with him sexually. And so I knocked him out and then I was leaving. girl. (laughs) I don't know. I was being rebellious. You know, there's that rebellious streak coming out and um, I knew I was going to be in really big trouble. So I was kind of just like out of it. I was going back to, I guess, my apartment and this girl ran a light and T-boned me and totaled the truck completely. And mm. there was a police officer behind me that witnessed the whole thing. And he came running up. I That's the only time I've ever been knocked out. So he came running up and I came to, he goes, oh my God, I thought you were dead. I thought you were going to be dead. Like it was a very bad car accident. And I was completely fine other than severe brain trauma. Like nothing was broken. Nothing was cut. It was kind of a miracle. Um, and I texted my trafficker and I said, um, I just got in a car accident and I almost died. And he said, is your face fucked up? Is your face effed up? And I said, no. And he goes, okay, you're still effable. And um, it was like a light switch turned on for me at that moment. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm being sex trafficked and I was raised in a call. It wasn't that. It mm-hmm. was, this is not what I want. This is not who I'm supposed to be. This is not where I'm supposed to be. And I knew that I had a very short window of clarity before I would get sucked back into whatever the the haze mm-hmm. that I was in. And so um, I actually tried to commit suicide, <laughs> was found, had myself because I, I was reassociating, right? Like I couldn't disassociate because I was seeing truth. Um, so all those emotions and all that trauma came flooding in. I tried to swaddle, swallow a whole bottle of sleeping pills. Um, and my neighbor, somebody found me. I can't really remember, but my stomach ended up getting pumped. They ended up finding me. I was dead when they found me, but they brought me back. And, um, so then I got a puppy because I figured if I got a puppy, I wouldn't try killing myself. And I still have her today. Her name's Redding. She's precious. Mm -hmm. And then I bought a ticket 
I bought a ticket back to Florida and was just like, I have to get out of here. And he didn't know where. Florida, where's Florida? Like, is that where your family is? Yes. So that's where I was born and raised. That's where I am now. Um, And I bought a plane ticket and it was all within like three days that I did this. This is all um, Valentine's weekend. (laughs) A lot. And I just left. I left everything. I left my apartment. I left my life. I was working a job during the day, believe it or not. So I left. I just left completely um, because I knew that I had to do it right then and there. Otherwise, he would figure out where I am. He would come get me. He would talk me back into saying, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah, that's how I got away. Wow. And were you terrified that he would come and find you? I wanted him to come get me. Because I was in love with him. Crazy. Insanity. Like Mm. literal insanity. Um, But that's the grip. And that's the the brainwashing and the mental codependency and toxicity that they have over you. And for about six months, I wanted him to come get me. I wanted him to want me, to need me. And he didn't. And that was really hard. That was really difficult to get through. Not only am I absolutely broken, not only am I quote unquote worthless because I'm no longer, you know, a virgin. Um, what intrinsic value do I have that this man doesn't even want me now that I have sacrificed so much for um, and endured so much pain for that he won't even come get me? That's a lot. Did you reach out to him at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we were talking. um, And then I told myself that if he didn't come get me by June, that I would cut it off completely and that I would, you know, start over. And so that was my birthday present to myself. June came and went and I started going to therapy. (laughs) So that time that you were at home, did you tell your, your parents, your family? Not initially, not for a couple of years. Um, Because I didn't even realize what had happened. I I had realized that I had been in an abusive relationship. That's as far as my mind would let me get with it. Mm -hmm. And then I started working. I I knew I was in an abusive relationship. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go start helping other women who are in a similar situation. And so I started working or applying for abuse shelters and, you know, uh, different kinds of, you know, domestic violence help places and whatnot. And I ended up applying for the only anti-sex trafficking organization in the country that focuses on domestic anti-sex trafficking, not mm. knowing that I was a victim. And I, they, were, they hired me. I started working for them and I was the intake counselor. So I'm really, I'm literally reading mm-hmm. these, these papers and these women's stories. And I'm like, Oh, I remember one day reading this woman's story. It was so similar to mine. And I'm like, oh my God. And I still had all of his logins to his social media on my phone. So I literally went back and looked and I saw the exchanges and I saw the arrangements and I saw the money transfers. And I was like, I went to my boss and I'm like, hey, I, I just realized this. I'm a victim. What do I do? And wow. they they were amazing. They sent me to the same therapist that we would send all of our women to and got me the help I needed. So it was really supernatural the way that whole thing, I was set up for healing and I was set up for growth and, and I'm beyond grateful for that. 
Wow. What does that process of healing look like? I just can't even imagine uh, getting through something that difficult. Messy. It looks very messy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but again, I've just been, as much as I was set up for failure, I've been so set up for success. Um, and especially more recently. Um, so that whole, that whole job and being surrounded by basically women only powerful women and we're working, we're helping women heal, which would help me heal. And then Mm -hmm. I'm going to the same therapist. Um, so yeah, it was super, super messy, but it was the best position. And it's funny now because I'm the only, I'm the only female in this office. I'm surrounded by alpha men and um, I'm the only female executive in the company just because the way the company runs and it's almost like the next chapter of like, okay, this is what I needed for that season to heal. And now that I'm stepping into leadership and empowerment as a high ranking executive to multimillion dollar companies, I'm surrounded by these incredible healthy men who are my brothers and I can support them and I can learn to interact with them without attributing any negative toxic qualities to them that I was taught that men are. They're redefining mm-hmm. what men are for me. And as well as my husband, obviously, but it's it's a really cool full circle kind of situation there. But yeah, that so hearing was messy. <laughs> what are you doing for work now? So I am the director for two different companies. Well, I own my own copywriting agency called Ingrico. That was my first business. Um, So we write books for massive influencers and coaches. Um, I'm bound by a lot of NDAs, but if I listed names, everybody would know who they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we write um, best-selling books, you know, New York Times bestseller books. So I'm a writer. And then um, I'm a high-ranking executive and director for Automation Empire which we manage investor money and build and create Amazon stores for them and manage their entire Amazon store for a profit split. And then the third company is wholesale automation. So um, that's the wholesaling company that procures the products that we sell in the client's Amazon stores for automation empire. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so a lot. Yeah, a lot. But it's cool because going from, again, going from victim to, okay, now I'm an overcomer and I'm healed. And now I'm stepping into empowering leadership roles where I'm leading teams of men and women. And and I'm stepping into this leadership role. You can see like a very succinct like process there and each require Mm -hmm. different levels of healing. Each Mm -hmm. require different skill sets. And um, I know even earlier you were asking me if I had kids and I've had five miscarriages. I would have never been able to survive that. I would have a hundred percent killed myself mm-hmm. from experiencing losing five babies if I didn't have the grit and the mental fortitude that going through all that other stuff forced me to build. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful for those experiences because I would have never been able to handle the pressure, the heartache, um, this level of operating at, you know, the level that I am, if I hadn't had those experiences and those opportunities to learn and grow and build from them. Mm-hmm. So wow. it all works together for good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I mean, there's a whole process of learning to trust yourself, trust your intuition, forgive yourself, like, and then trust other people. What was the most beneficial part of the therapy process for you? Um, the most, I remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, he, my therapist was wearing blue socks with yellow rubber duckies on them because I remember staring at them because I was so <laughs> mad at him. He's incredible. John's incredible. And he, we were talking about, I don't know even what we were talking about, but he stopped me. He goes, you know, you're allowed to be okay. Even though what he did wasn't okay. Like you being fully healed doesn't negate what happened to you. And I just lost. I just started bawling because it, when you're abused, you are so gaslighted by your abuser, by even people that you share, you know, that well-meaning people don't know what to do with that information usually, and they'll accidentally gaslight you. You'll be gaslighted like crazy. And so you you end up feeling like you have to be broken in order to prove what happened was horrible. It's like, I have mm. to have scars in order to show that this actually happened and it was as terrible as I'm telling you it was. If I'm fully healed, how? How are you fully okay after that? You know? Mm -hmm. Um and so there's this weird thing to where you keep self-sabotaging because you have to prove that it was horrible. And when he addressed that and was like, you're allowed to be okay. And that doesn't make what he did okay. It doesn't rationalize it away. I that was one of the most impactful moments mm -hmm. of I don't have to remain broken. I can be fully healed and wildly successful if I want mm -hmm. to be. And I did. And I am. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, he gave you permission to kind of be whole. Mm -hmm. Even yep. with, with your, with your story and your past and everything that makes you who you are, that makes you that incredible being that you are now. Um, and kind of owning that, that you don't have to be a broken human. Yeah. It was the yeah. permission I didn't know I needed, but definitely yeah. did. And how far into the therapy was that? Probably like two or three years. <laughs> we mm -hmm. had so much to get through, so much for me to even trust him, mm -hmm. for even us to get to that level. Um, he's a rapid resolution trauma therapist, so they specialize in massive PTSD. Um, he says, I, I'm, I was one of the worst cases of PTSD that he's ever seen, and he's worked with war veterans. He's worked with a lot of people. So we had a lot to, to unpack there before we could get to that level of ownership mm -hmm. and acceptance. Oh, yeah. And like you said, to forgive yourself and to forgive him. Like I look on my trafficker with so much grace and, and sympathy because I mean the tra the tragic story isn't mine. The tragic story is his. He'll never get to know peace. He'll never get to know true love. He'll never get to know success. I mean unless something radically wild changes in his life. He will mm -hmm. never get to know these things and that's absolute hell. I get to enjoy every bit of my life. Mm -hmm. Do you still have those triggers that trigger that PTSD? Yeah. A thousand percent, especially working with these boys, bless their heart. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like 
all, you know, they're humans too. So they'll get upset or they'll, they'll, you know, not like something I did or, you know, whatever. And they're not angry people. I'm not trying to show that, but you know, they'll just be normal humans and they have their own stuff too. And I'll start to shut down and I'll start to, but I know enough to when that starts to happen that I just de-escalate myself, use all my tools, talk myself down, or even in marriage, you know, that that was a very scary thing to commit mm-hmm. to. Um, but yeah, I get, I get triggered all the time. But what I've really realized is um, you don't, there's an obsession with looking for triggers. And I was past the point of where I've already healed. I've already done the work. I'm already doing the things. And I was being toxic in that I was basically necromancing my old demons in order to have something to work on. And Mm -hmm. I didn't need to do that. I didn't need to dig up this stuff. I just needed to Mm -hmm. live my life. And as things came up, address that. And I think Mm -hmm. we get addicted to trying to fix ourselves which I believe in personal growth. I'm, I got like 20 books right here on my on my desk that are all about personal development. I love that stuff. But I think we need to be really careful to not resurrect things that are already buried and fine. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to move forward and move on. So that's something, instead of looking for triggers, I look for glimmers. Mm-hmm. So instead of looking for things to that upset me and trying to dodge them, I look for things that light me up. I look for things that bring me joy and passion and I fixate on those things because what you look for, you'll find. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I think you mentioned in another podcast struggling with um, suicidal ideation. Oh, yeah. um, is that something that comes up for you still sometimes? Yeah, it's definitely a romantic thought that brings me a lot of peace when I think about it but that's the weak side of me right that's the insecurity so that's the escapism or the fear of not being enough um it's definitely gotten much better more recently since now I'm I'm done with the pregnancy or trying to have kids I'm able to actually focus on my mental health all Mm -hmm. all in kind of thing because a lot of mental health medication does not coincide very well with fertility and with when you're trying to get pregnant they don't work well together so once we decided that that door was actually shut to us I was able to then really address my mental health and um got on some medication which um before I was trying I do the gym I eat clean I do all the water all the meditation all the cold plunges and you know, I was still struggling. So I'm like, okay, I've done all the things. And I'm not just using this as an escape or as a crutch or anything not to say medication is I just need to make sure for myself. Mm -hmm. And um, more recently, I've been on Paxil, uh, 10 Mm -hmm. milligrams a day. And it's been incredible. It's been such a relief to not have to fight negative thoughts every single day, but to Mm -hmm. have the ability to think positive thoughts on my own, naturally, night and day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's incredible. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if somebody's in that place where they're just going into that dark hole, like what are some of the best coping mechanisms that you've found for yourself that have helped you kind of reach towards that light in those darkest moments? Um, I would get really curious. I think curiosity is one of the most powerful tools that we seem to lose very early on in life. But 
it's really hard to have negative thoughts or angry thoughts um, when you get wildly curious. So I would ask myself, okay, well, why do I want to kill myself? How would I if I did? Let's let's do that. Okay, well, then I would do that. Okay, well, then I start dismantling. Okay, well, then that will cause problems because of A, B, and C. Okay, so if I'm not going to kill myself, then what am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to not eat today. You know, whatever self-sabotage behavior. Okay, well, what is that going to do for you? How is that actually going to work? Because you got to go to the gym, you got to go to work, you got to perform, you gotta, you're going to let these people down if you're not functioning. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I guess I'll eat. Okay, so so what are we going to do to deal with this? Oh, we're going to freak out and cry in the corner. Okay, let's schedule that so it doesn't disrupt any meetings. When would you like to freak out and cry in the corner? And I actually used to schedule breakdowns every Thursday in my calendar because mm-hmm. I know I could disassociate until that point usually. And so then I would literally book time for me to have a breakdown and to re-engage and let it out. And that worked for me for quite a while. And so then once I was able to establish that, it's like, okay, how do we, how do we deescalate from there? Can we just make the time shorter? Okay, let's just make the time shorter. Or can we, you know, make it more of a tentative date to where we don't have to show up for it all the time if we don't feel like it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I would just walk myself back after becoming wildly curious and bring myself back down. Um, If I couldn't bring myself down, then I I would have like a safe word (laughs) that I would post on social media. It was always cool. The word cool. And um, I had three friends that knew if they saw that they had to reach out to me, they would Mm -hmm. immediately call me and be like, what's going on? Let's talk through it. Come on over. or I'm coming over or whatever. Um, And they knew that no matter what I said, they had to intervene and they would. Um, So I think just having like becoming Mm -hmm. wildly curious, learning how to deescalate yourself um, and doing smaller and smaller sabotages that I can control that, you know, okay, if I choose not to eat today, that's way better than killing myself. So, okay, well, let's make sure to have electrolytes. And then next time this happens, how can we deescalate even further? Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, sometimes having mini sabotages is a great way to bring yourself out of chronic Mm self-sabotage and more severe self-sabotage. So um, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but that's what worked for me. I mean, it sounds like there's this whole process of when you're going through this survival piece of of being violated and abused and beat up and taken advantage of, there's this disassociation piece that's a survival piece. And now you're kind of doing the opposite of that. You're bringing it back to like finding yourself, getting curious, exploring those emotions, really going into them, giving yourself permission for that. I mean, you're doing the exact opposite. Um, and that totally makes sense. That's such a such a great tools that you have in, in your toolbox. It, it, it's a opposite of avoidance, right? Because a lot of times yeah. when things get rough, we want to run and avoid. Um, and, mm-hmm. and you're kind of standing in your power and willing to face those things head on as ugly as they might be. Yep. Yeah. My, my husband has been really great at that too, because he'll be like, what's going on? You're off. Tell me about it. Tell me what you're feeling. I'm like, it doesn't make sense. I'm just feeling it. And he's like, well, tell me. Like, it doesn't have to make sense. And so then I think a lot of times speaking it out loud really Mm -hmm. disempowers it as well. If you keep it inside, it can grow into something crazy. But if you tell someone like, I feel like this today and I'm okay, it's just the way I feel. There's no Mm -hmm. reason for it. It's dumb. It's just the way I feel. People will go, oh, okay. And Gavin, he goes, oh, okay. What do you need? Do you need me to 
do you need space? Do you need to be quiet? Do we need to go outside? Like, what do you need? And then I'm able to express whatever I need and we go about it. Um, Mm -hmm. So having that person that you can communicate that to and can be your sidekick, like he's my best friend, he's my lover, he's my husband, he's amazing, um, is really helped as well. I mean, it sounds like that that's again, that reaching out instead of crawling into a hole is that you mm-hmm. have a therapist that you reach out to. You've got your three friends that know your trigger word that are there for you in a hot moment yeah. and, and your husband, and it's reaching out for that support and, and, and being vulnerable, mm-hmm. which I bet well, I'm guessing it was really a tricky, hard thing being an MMA fighter and being so tough and having such a shell to get into that place of cracking that open and, and oh, learning yeah. how to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what that four years of therapy did. Just, mm-hmm. just as, just as my um, morals and mental health was broken down by my trafficker, you know, we had to break down the other thing that he built in me, which was shame, guilt, resentment, fear, anger. I mean, we had to break down that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's impressive that you were able to do that because I think that would be the most scary thing of all is to just open that Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. and explore it. And, um, it sounds like if you're saying you did that in, in, you know, four years, that's, you must've done an incredible amount of soul searching and diving deep in order to process. Cause that's actually not that long. It, it sounds like a long time, but it's not that long to work through these yeah. patterns that have been ingrained for so many years. Yeah, no, I mean, it was definitely, I had to be very aggressive with it and very focused with it. But in that, time it was either it was do or die you know it was Mm -hmm. it was survival and it was like okay well if we're going to rebuild our life we have to be really just as aggressive with it as we were with destroying it so Mm -hmm. you know suit up (laughs) Mm -hmm. I would like to touch on the prevalence of sex trafficking I think it's something that is is kind of hidden in the backgrounds it's actually Mm -hmm. a lot more prevalent than people think um, and I know you have some statistics out there of like how long people actually survive that before they get, um, hurt themselves or somebody harms them. Mm-hmm. Um, how as an individual in society, can I bring some awareness to that or do something, or if I see something or what are the flags, what can I do? Um, I mean, being connected to the different hotlines and the different resources. So there's the human trafficking hotline, there's the missing children uh, hotline. I think it's really important to know to not um, approach anybody that you believe is in that situation, because that could be very detrimental for them, um, as far as they could suffer the consequences for talking to somebody they shouldn't, or they're quote unquote on the clock and um, supposed to be making money. So please don't approach anybody that you think is being trafficked. But instead, you know, um, there's the National Human Trafficking Hotline that you can report it to. If you call your police station, you the non-emergency number, you can report what you're seeing. They usually have a human trafficking unit that addresses that. Um, so all, all of those factors as far as like how to help. And then State with Freedom, which I'll give you the link to they have a lot of educational resources to teach people what to look for and how to interact um and you know different resources and places that you can send people in that situation and did you uh, ever feel like you'd put out a little feeler out in public or were you very conscious of not doing anything because you were afraid of getting hurt 
Um, I thought it was pretty freaking obvious, but um, I don't know, man. I, I was so in it deep, like mentality as well that I would have. I remember having a woman come up to me because I had bruises on me from my fight. Um, and she would come up to me and she gave me a card and she's like, if you need help, like this is a woman's shelter. I'm like, oh no, like I fight. This is what I do. And like, mm-hmm. absolute idiot, right? But um, even at work, like I'm coming to work and I'm wearing the same thing every single day for a week. Like, how do you not notice that as a sign of massive depression? You know, how do you not see that as a cry for help? So one side of me would reach out or thought I was like pretty obvious. And then the other side of me was not letting me do that. So I I don't really know how to answer that because I thought it was pretty obvious. but. At the same time, I was in it, you know? Yeah. What are some telltale signs that if, um, I realize that there's a lot within the porn industry, Mm -hmm. um, and what are, what are some of the other places where things are common like that? I'm usually like highly, uh, big, big, uh, interstates like um here we have a place called 301 it's a big highway there's a lot of hotels there so that you'll i believe prostitution is the same as sex trafficking not everyone agrees with me on that but um that's where we would have a lot of women being prostituted you'd see them walking Um, a lot of signs are you'll see a woman who she looks homeless but her nails are done or Mm. she'll look homeless and she has a bag and that's her trafficker romancing her that's her trafficker doing that push pull of where they're you know abusing but then also taking care of them and rewarding them so um if someone doesn't know what city they're in or doesn't seem to have an any idea of their surroundings because they're being moved from place to place and they're sleep deprived Mm. they won't know where they're at um we see a lot and of that movement's common, right? They just, oh, the, yeah. the traffickers move them so that they Sorry, um, don't get caught. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't get caught, but it's a, it's a means of control too. If you're absolutely sleep deprived and you're being moved to a different city every night, it's really hard to know where the hell you are, what day it is and what side is up or down. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. control tactic for sure. Um, but then also someone who doesn't have their personal documents, like you don't have your driver's license or they don't have a wallet or they don't seem to have like their normal things, then that's a sign that they're being controlled as well. Somebody else mm-hmm. is having that or somebody else is speaking for them, um, especially like a male. There's females too, but usually male. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you talk about this, about not approaching the person, um, because it almost sounds like some of those people are so deep in that situation or there's so much fear that even mm-hmm. if the right person approached them, mm-hmm. that they would would lie just for self-preservation and protection. Yeah, I would do anything to protect him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crazy, right? Like, But again, I'd sacrifice so much to be in that position that mm-hmm. I had to make it work for myself. So I wasn't going to ruin the chance to save him or ruin the chance to save the situation. Um, so even if someone had approached me, I would have told them everything was fine and okay. Um, so to get a woman out of that situation takes time, it takes usually seven to eight points of contact um, and wow. takes someone who really knows what they're doing. So like I would go out to the area where there was a lot of women being prostituted and I would have um, hot pockets and condoms 
And I would just hand out hot pockets and condoms because they needed protection and they were hungry usually. Mm -hmm. And I would just build relationship with them in about the seventh or eighth point of contact. Then they were ready to go to recovery. Then they were ready to go into safe housing. Then they were ready to prosecute, you know, the Mm -hmm. trafficker. So it it takes, again, a breaking down. It Mm -hmm. takes, you know, consistency because that's one thing you definitely don't have when you're in an abusive situation like that. You don't have any consistency of anything. So to have someone that's consistently showing up for you, that's a game changer. Mm -hmm. And do you know the statistics for how prevalent it is in the U.S.? Well, we know that like one in three girls are sexually abused by the time they're seven or eight. And we know that one in five boys are sexually abused by the time they're seven or eight. And childhood sexual abuse is about 99% of the cases that we've seen trafficking. And so those are reported numbers. um, And a lot of people don't have a report. So if you can imagine if Mm -hmm, 99%, that's a lot. Um, and it's one of the second most illegal, lucrative illegal enterprises in the U.S., um, only second to drug trafficking. And it is above illegal arms dealing. Wow. So it's a big issue that nobody talks about. Wow. And do you think most of the trafficking is, is within the U.S. or sometimes they get trafficked outside of the country? Um, more so they're getting trafficked into the U.S. So the border situation is a really huge um, problem when it comes to children being trafficked or, you know, women being trafficked across uh, the country into into America. So we see a lot of gang activity involved with um, if you have a child, basically, it, they're your free card to get into the U.S. at this point. So they will kidnap children in order to be let in and be like, I'm their uncle. I'm the only person that they can mm-hmm. depend on. And so, okay, now they're let in because the child is here and the child needs an adult to take care of them. We don't want to put them into DCF. So now this uncle is taking care of them. He's going to traffic them or he's going to sell them. Mm-hmm. One of the two. Um, so it that creates a massive, massive current issue with trafficking into the U.S. and domestic sex trafficking. And then I'm guessing that the kids that are getting trafficked in, the children are in their really early years, 13, 14. Is that correct? Earlier than that. (laughs) And then they want them as virgins. So then what happens when they're kind of washed out and they've, they've done their course and they've done this for years that they're kind of a little bit more broken? What happens to those, those girls? Or those boys too. Um, they either, you know, continue onto that life and become addicts and, you know, die from their addiction or they are die from the physical trauma of being raped by adults. So it's very physically damaging for children. Um, they're small. They're not supposed to be doing that. So a lot of times they'll just commit suicide or they'll die. Or they'll grow into and Wow. It's pretty brutal, right? So. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you got out. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm super blessed in that for sure, which is why I was and happy it, to help others. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Really? Yeah. I mean, wow. 
I just can't imagine getting through something like that. And um, mm -hmm. I'm just so impressed with how far you've come and what you've done. It's incredible. You're incredible. Thank you. No, I've had a lot of help and a lot of um, support along the way. And again, even in my current job and uh, family situation, I'm super blessed with the people around me and my team and my coworkers are incredible. So super grateful. Mm -hmm. And if people wanted to connect with you, is there a way that they can do that? Sure. Yeah, definitely on Instagram is usually where I'm at. So Instagram.com forward slash Amanda Katarzy is my handle. So mm -hmm. <laughs> DM me anytime. And then you'll send me some resources that I can throw in the show notes about um, what where people can find valid information of how they can help others or yep. if they want to know more about this topic. A hundred percent. I'll send you everything. Yeah. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for being so willing and open to share your story and, um, and come on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. It was my absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Connected Community Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe. I can be found at www.nikkiyyoga.com, N-I-C-K-Y-Y-Y-O-G-A.com. Until I see you again next week, I hope you have a beautiful day.